You are listening to The Last Aid Station on Mountain Bike Radio, your source of off-road news and highlights. Welcome to The Last Aid Station here on Mountain Bike Radio, and I'm joined again by Steve, my trusty companion, the laurel to my hearty. Wow. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, how have things been? I, mean, I know we're here... I'm here in North Carolina, and I'm, I get kind of spoiled with by the weather we have. Certainly, we eventually do get some coldish weather, but nothing like you guys get. How, how's your weather been up there for training? Uh, w- winter's here. Gotten quite a few miles in this week, but it's like 25 degrees right now. Uh, yeah, I, I was on the trainer yesterday, the day before I got out, but it's it's uh, winter is here. It's a little late compared to last year, but it's it's definitely here, so. Yeah, before we went on the air, of course, we were talking about, you know, how things are up there and stuff like that. And you said last year, by this time, you were ice fishing, snow on the ground. Yeah, if I remember correctly, I think this weekend I was out ice fishing. And then the weekend after Thanksgiving, there was quite a few people out on the ice. So I, I never want to live somewhere where ice fishing is a sport. Never. <laughs> just not. I just can't imagine. And my wife would kill me. Is my wife would never live anywhere. She's already told me that North Carolina is as far north as we ever live. <laughs> so, um, if I can get her to move to the mountains, that'll be great. Um, and certainly that's in the plans and in the works. We're hopefully going to move to the mountains. But uh, I lived she's, in Illinois. She's, at she, point. she's actually from Chicago. And oh, that's, really? prob- that's probably why she'll never live anywhere. So I lived in central Illinois and it was too far south for me. It was too warm in the summers. Really? Yeah. I do. You know, I grew up Humidity. in Pittsburgh. I grew up in Pittsburgh and I actually, I miss seasons, which we really don't have here. We have summer. We definitely have fall. We definitely have spring, but our winter is hit or miss. Like sometimes it just goes, sometimes we have like literally a, like two weeks of cold weather and it goes right back. The years where we have snow on the ground is memorable because it like paralyzes the state because we don't have any snow removal equipment. We don't have anything like that. And it, I mean, it really, really, really does a number on this state. Yeah. Um, and I miss, I do miss, like, having grown up in Pittsburgh, I miss, you know, almost four equal seasons. And it's definitely not like that here. Um, but yeah. it's it's great for training here. Um, but it's definitely made me soft because I remember as long as there wasn't ice on the ground, I was riding outside in Pittsburgh, you know, okay. 20 degrees, 15 degrees, whatever. Um, here, and if it's below, like, 40 i'm not going outside which is crazy uh but that's just that's just what i've kind of evolved to i guess um but you know whatever i I, it's nice that i don't have to ride indoors if i don't want to but the cool thing is is that now that i've got a kicker trainer it's making me able to pass time easier yeah it's not as much of a i don't necessarily hate riding indoors like i'll still i still prefer to ride outside but on those days where it's raining and, you know, I, I just want to get a quick workout in or it's yep. dark, you know, I get home from late work late or whatever. I don't mind getting on the trainer. My road bike is permanently set up on the trainer right now. And I just, I'll just do that. So I've it's kind of evolved. control. Like if you have a specific training workout, you need. To oh, do, absolutely. It's, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, the trainer's good for that. I mean, I'd rather be outside too, but there's, there's sometimes as well, like you can do a little task, right? Can, yeah. If you're, yeah. If you had some stuff you need to study, and or, you know, whatever. And it's, it's nowhere near what it used to be with the trainers, you know, where, I mean, certainly you can still get those trainers that are like that, you know, the dumb trainers where you, you know, you put it on a, 
you know, turbo trainer or a magnetic trainer. You just stare at a wall for an hour. Yeah. I'm just on a fluid trainer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know, like things have really evolved. I mean, I remember when I first started riding trainers, I mean, you know, no, nobody was watching movies or television because they were so damn loud. And so you couldn't do that. Now you can, you can figure out ways to pass the time. And there's all these cool little apps and things that can function with different ways. And power meters now have evolved enough that, you know, you can actually do specific workouts and then you get these smart trainers that set the workout for you. And you do, you know, you, put you through an interval session or a certain power number for a certain uh, interval and you uh, just do starting it. to sell me on these power meters. I, yeah. I don't have one and it, uh, it's on my list. Yeah. Power meters are, are uh, they're a pretty cool tool if they're used correctly. I mean, if you're just using them to look at numbers after the fact, it's probably really not worth the money, but if you're using them to actually work out in real time, it's, I think it's a great tool for improving. Um, so yeah, they are still kind of pricey, but those, you know, as it gets more and more competitive, I think in that field, we'll see that evolve into even cheaper and cheaper versions of them. Um, of course, there's always going to be those companies that come in and don't do very well and fail and things like that. But, yeah. you know, it used to be SRM was the only company and then Quark came in and then, you know, now you've, I bet there's off the top of my head, I could probably name 10 that are out there now. Yeah, there, there's a lot. I, I've looked into yeah. them. You know, for what we do, you know, people talk about, you know, the, the benefit of pedal based or, or crank based or hub based or, you know, for what we do. And, and I don't think the specifics really matter that much. And I think it's a great tool um, for, for training, but whew, getting off topic. Um, but anyhow, <laughs> it's all right. we're, yeah, that's all right. Uh, we're, so we're, we're going to go into the, some news here at the beginning of the show. We have a big kind of a, smaller show today because we're really not we're in that kind of weird part of the season where the endurance season has pretty much ended and we still aren't here far enough along yet into the winter season where we've got some fat bike endurance racing going on kind of i mean it's a cyclocross season we really don't cover it that much but we're kind of in that weird season where nothing's really going on we do have coverage of la ruta which is arguably one of the biggest or bigger stage races in the world and t- has a different take on stage racing. So almost the adventure side of things. And then we also have Iceman, which though isn't a traditional endurance race. It is if you look at the mileage, um, but given the fact that those guys are doing 16, 17, 19 miles an hour. Oh, through more than that. Course. Yeah. They're hauling. Uh, so we, we like to cover it only because just because, it's a huge Even race, too. It's a huge it's race. It's like 5,000 people. And often it is the perfect distance where you actually start to see the guys that are endurance specialists competing against the more traditional guys. Now, the one thing that kind of throws a monkey wrench into the whole thing is it's the end of the season. But it's a huge race that a lot of people, I know more than one or two people, actually target. Like, that's their race for the year. And it's interesting to see where those guys come out. Um, it's not very technical at all. Um, so you see some road guys in there. You see some cyclocross guys that are maybe taking a week off in the middle of the cyclocross season. You see the endurance guys. You see the cross-country guys that are maybe at the end of their season or just starting into training for next season. It's a, often a really, 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 really cool mix. And um, it, we're going to have coverage of that event uh, later on in the show. Uh, so we lead off the show with some team news for 2016. Like we always do, bringing up some news. 
Unfortunately, the news up front is going to be some bad news for a specific team, and that's the demise of Toasted Head Racing. Now, Toasted Head Racing is an endurance team, kind of focused on the endurance thing, and they were kind of an answer to the Team CF or rare disease cycling from a team perspective. There was certainly a lot of success by rare disease cycling over the past five or six years working in that team environment. Jake Wade formed Toasted Head Racing around the idea that if you're going to beat that team, you're going to need to form a team that can compete as a team. And so they formed Toasted Head Racing. They were really growing that team. They had a ton of success. I've mentioned them hundreds of times, I am sure, on this show. Their racers, their riders, their team has done phenomenally well. The problem was is they have a problem with their sponsor. And it wasn't the loss of the sponsor. It was, I'm not going to get into the specifics, but it was an issue with uh, the way the team was used by the sponsor. And Jake Wade uh, felt that he had no choice but to end the team and start anew. Knowing the way Jake is, because he is a very organized person, he's a very good manager, he has created a super team. Don't count Jake Wade out. I'm not sure that he won't continue the team in some form in 2016. But he, after speaking to him, he said that there's definitely something coming in 2017 with a non-bike industry sponsor who has talked to him, shown some interest in the team, and we'll, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. The problem is, is – still up in the air for 2016, though. Right. He had said that he's looking more toward 2017, and he's okay. told the riders that it's really not going to continue. Uh, but I, I find it hard to believe that if someone wouldn't approach Jake Wade at this point as a as a lead sponsor that something couldn't be worked out. But I'm not going to put words in his mouth. I think he's I think he knows what he's doing. Yeah. He's he's shown that over the growth of the team over the past three years or so. There's some uh, top riders in there too, right? Yeah, right. So you've got Ryan Serbel, who we were just talking about the last show, having won Iron Cross. You've got Jake himself, who is a turned it around to try to specialize in 24 hour racing this year. You've got uh, Jess Kelly, you've got Jim Mayurik. All of those guys are going to probably be moving elsewhere unless something can be worked out. Several of those riders are rumored to be moving over to rare disease cycling, which is actually where Jess Kelly came from to begin with. It'll be interesting to see what happens there because rare disease cycling is rumored to be getting a big makeover after not really a down year in 2015, but they'd lost some riders and they'd slowly started to lose riders not through any fault of their own. We had Jerry Flew kind of retiring due to some injuries and things like that. You have cross-country phenom Cole Oberman, who'd raced for rare disease cycling and is moving over to ride Biker Alliance for next year. You'd had Cheryl Sorensen, who'd moved from endurance racing more over to a traditional cross-country and cyclocross over the past two or three years. And so they're looking, I think, to build that team back up. Now, I'm not sure if they're building that team back up on the endurance side of things. My hope is they would because they were a huge supporter and that was a huge thing to see those rare disease cycling kits on the front of the pack. It was kind of cool to see. Um, Had they made some switch? Were they doing more XC type stuff or? They've taken on Cole Oberman last year, and Cole Oberman has been doing phenomenally well. He's under the tutelage of Jeremiah Bishop. He's been racing some of the World Cup events. He's gone overseas. He's raced the European World Cup. And I think they've looked at him more from a, let's support this young guy. Let's give him all the support we can. Um, Now, Cole Oberman had also been racing for the national team in some events and not necessarily riding in a rare disease cycling kit. 
but they tried to give him as much support as they can, and they've done so. But he is definitely not on the endurance side of things. He is okay. definitely more of your traditional. Um, but he certainly put their jersey, that rare jersey, cycling jersey, especially on the domestic side, right there at the front. I think he'd won some of the Pro XE short track. He'd done very well in those earlier in the year, even at the Pro XET Tour. So good luck to Cole. I mean, I, I, I don't think there's any bad feelings about him moving over to a true pro team and it'll be kind of cool to see where he goes with that but i think where does he cycling is kind of in a rebuilding type of environment right now and they're going to try to pull up some top athletes they did very well in the endurance thing and i and i would bet they're kind of going to kind of go back in that direction to see if they can work it more again from the team perspective so um what team news so trick world racing saw that it's folding after eight years on the world cup circuit. And so they not only did Trek world racing support a cross country team, but they'd also sponsored a downhill team and enduro team and all of the different little subdivisions there. They'd occasionally had their riders dabbling in marathon events, but for the most part they were XC and downhill. Um, But the Trek world racing team will be folding after this year. There will be a Trek factory team, that is going to kind of replace it from the sponsor side of things. But at this point, they have only signed downhill riders in the form of the Atherton brother and sister team. And it's unclear if there'll be any other factory teams from Trek on the world stage, except in those gravity events and unclear if they're what their involvement is going to be even as a sponsor for other teams in cross country and marathon. So yeah, I, I had I had seen that, and Atherton was with GT for the last four years too. Yeah, I mean, he'd really made GT actually a, a big name on the downhill scene. I mean, that, it, it was almost synonymous. Those both she and him had done both of those. Um, Rachel um, had certainly done her bit on the downhill side on the women's, and I mean, they were almost synonymous with GT. I mean, name another GT rider. And if someone asked me like name of GT mountain biker. Those are probably the only two I could name. Um, so it'll be kind of interesting to see what happens with GT one. And if Trek is going to be involved in anything other than downhill at this point, as far as being a primary sponsor in other news, ride biker Alliance has announced its 2016 team. They've always had a smattering of marathon endurance racers and at least a couple of that has success, but they're much more traditionally focused on that cross-country and the pro XCT tour that's definitely where they that's definitely where they seem to be pushing their athletes towards um, but some of the, the riders they have signed for 2016 including Tristan Yule he's had success up 200k I think he's done fairly well at some marathons he's also done very well in mountain bike stage races and a little bit of success here and there on the roadside uh, but he's joining the team from 787 Racing, which is a team out of Texas. Eric Bostrom of Motorcycle Racing fame, who we've reported ve- doing very well at an MUE race here once or twice in the past year or so, he's going to continue with the team. Now, he'd been with Show Air, and he's going to move over to the Ride Biker Alliance side of things. And it'll be interesting to see how they push him because I don't really recall him racing a lot of the traditional cross-country stuff and more on the endurance side of things. But it'll be kind of interesting to see where he starts racing for next year. Curiously absent 
from the officially released roster of Ride Biker Alliance was Tinker Juarez. Um, he's been with the team over five years. It's kind of evolved from, you know, Shoto Cannondale. And then in the last year, it was Ride Biker Alliance. Um, but interestingly, he's not on that official right roster. Now, rumors are that he has actually signed a contract for Cannondale, specifically part of a factory deal through 2017. I haven't been able to confirm that, but knowing where he's been, knowing what they're doing and knowing that he's not on the ride biker Alliance, I find it hard to believe that Cannondale wouldn't somehow reach out to him and continue his face on their brand. I think it's a, a really good thing for them. Yeah. He's not going to just disappear off the map. No, so, no. I mean, certainly something's going to happen. <laughs> certainly any, anybody would love to have Tinker riding their, their bike. I mean, why wouldn't you? Yep. Uh, I mean, certainly probably one of the top three or four legends of the sport, on the North American scene, still racing at the very, very top end of the sport. Anybody would want that. And regardless of, you know, it'd be one thing if, if you were talking about like a legend of the sport that really doesn't race that much, maybe you're Gary Fisher or your um, Ned Overend who, you know, shows up here and there for races. But this is a guy that's still throwing down every weekend at big races. And he's kind of moved on to racing marathon, but he's doing really, really, really well at those. And so you certainly would never call him washed up ever. Um, He's a one heck of a racer and he's shown that you can race very, very well at the top end, well into your fifties. So in another, what were they thinking moment? USAC has placed marathon nationals in direct conflict with the biggest race in the NUE series at Mohican. Now, Mohican. 700 racers at Mohican, too. Yes. By the way. Mohican is the, definitely the biggest race in the NUE series. Um, the combined 100 mile and 100K race, but it's literally on the same day. Additionally, that Marathon Nationals is kind of in indirect conflict with the Transylvania Epic because the Transylvania Epic actually runs through, I think the first marathon nationals being two or three days later. You can't think that someone would actually race the Transylvania Epic and expect to do very well, knowing that the national championships are just two or three days later. Um, Now conspiracy theorists would make this into something malicious, but I think it's just a bit of stupidity and ignorance on the part of USAC to not consult the calendars of the biggest endurance series in the U.S. and perhaps the largest stage race in the U.S. or one of the most popular, certainly. Um, I don't think it's going to cause much of a decrease in the attendance to Mohican, perhaps only at the top of the field with a couple of those guys deciding they want to go to nationals. You have some defending marathon national champions that do compete in the MUE series in the form of Brian Schwarm and Keck Baker and Gordon Wadsworth. But it'll be interesting to see how that affects the total numbers. So people racing in the NUE series and whatnot, how many of those folks do you think have licenses and race, you know, you know, I don't know. That's, that's, that's always kind of interesting. Um, I think at the top end, quite a few, but I think the majority, not many. And I think honestly, that probably one of the reasons that many people get involved in the NUE is that I can race a, a quality, quality race series with great promotion and great race direction without having that. Yeah. Um, 
you also have to wonder from the, what are they thinking? You know, the USA cycling doesn't do any kind of promotion of marathon distance cross country races outside of nationals. And so if someone specializes in marathon distance, which is kind of becoming the way the sport's evolving with people actually specializing in that distance, people aren't going to buy a race license for a one day race. Yeah. I mean, everyone talks about NUE fees being too expensive, but my goodness, (laughs) the, the cost of buying a license and the cost of entry for marathon nationals would I mean, it's, that's crazy expensive. Um, I don't think it's going to decrease the, the, the attendance to NUE, but I think, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to explain why they would even do this. Like my biggest concern with this is that USAC, as much as they're trying to reach out to promoters and we're actually going to talk about this in just a, in another news event, uh, (laughs) but as much as they're trying to reach out to promoters to try to build their brand back up and try to increase the number of sanctioned races to not even look at the biggest races in the national championship distance that you're promoting. Uh, it's, it's, I just, I don't even understand what they're, what they're thinking. Many riders that attend nationals, they do that when they believe they can place or podium. Like people don't go to race a nationals event when you're just, just to finish it, just to finish it. Right. right. Like, like you can do in the NUE. And so you're looking at a very small percentage of riders, but that's additionally, many riders who ride in the NUE often do not have USAC licenses. And the point is moot, especially with the rising fees and the riders electing to race marathon nationals as a one-off event. It's completely price restrictive. Is I mean, those guys, really those guys the right are, time of year to do marathon nationals as well. No, you know, they've actually changed the date several times. And I think it's up to when they award the, I don't think marathon nationals is so high on the radar for USA cycling that they really even care when it is. Um, yeah. I've seen marathon nationals run in August. Now, certainly I wouldn't want to be running, uh, a marathon distance event in Georgia in August. And I understand that, That's true. but the event is actually, at least last year it was, and I'd imagine it would be, it's around a, I think it's called the Wildwood games, which is a uh, kind of a get outdoors kind of games kind of thing, kind of like the Tiva games in Colorado where there, you know, there's kayaking events and there's mountain biking okay. and trail running and things like that. And they run this as part of that. Okay. Um, but it just seems like I, I just I just can't believe that they would allow someone to do that right. And not only that, but literally you're, you're talking both on the East Coast. I mean, there will be people that live in the mid-Atlantic region that have to choose between these two races. Yeah, I mean, it, um, it is tough. I mean, just to be fair, too, right? Every four weeks there is an, an NUE race. And the one correct. at the beginning of the year, they're pretty big, right? So you've got Kohata, Mohican. And then uh, lumberjack, right? That you'd have to work around, but it, you know you could pick a weekend halfway between, give somebody a chance to do both, right? But I, the thing that it stinks is you're making people to make a choice. Yeah, you are making people to make a choice, and you know the conspiracy theorists will be like, interesting. They put it on the day of the biggest NUE race um, against a promoter that has been very isn't necessarily against USAC, but it's just like me and questions sometimes their intentions as to what why you're doing the things the way you're doing. I mean, I think if I had to write a letter to USAC, I'd 
say, you know, something along the lines of uh, Dear USAC, if you're looking, there's a great calendar for your future list, for your future use that lists all of the races over at mountainbikeradio.com. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's got Reminder, a list. Of, FYI. FYI. And, and listeners, I'm sure you guys are aware of it. We have a great calendar over there. It lists every endurance race that I know of. And all they have to do is look at it. Uh, but it's funny. I, I don't understand what they're thinking. And then uh, to piggyback onto that, it came out last week in a big velonews.com or velonews article that with uh, the new director uh, president of USA Cycling, Bouchard Hall, that they are literally losing millions right now, citing they're going to have to get rid of some staff, they're going to have to cut some programs, and they're going to be cutting things like developmental and elite programs. They're going to be raising fees on promotions and yeah, there's a lot of cuts and some a lot of increase and still i I thought the last thing i read too is whatever there's current plans were still wasn't going to hit the budget but i'm I'm not sure yeah i I think it i mean it's it's evolving i i kind of had like some positive vibes when this new guy took over because you kind of got rid of that you're getting rid of that old guard and he went in there and actually started cleaning house a little bit i mean cutting some people straight out of the you know firing people like straight out as soon as he got in there. And it was, I thought it would be kind of interesting to see what he was going to do with it. And the way he had presented himself in the initial interviews after he'd gotten into that position, you know, I had, I had really good vibes coming from there. Uh, but my, one of my biggest issues with his conversation in the Vela news article is that he relates that they want to work with promoters to bring some of the non-traditional events like gravel racing and endurance racing into USAC events by offering options to promoters and working with them. But then they willingly schedule their national event <laughs> against the promoter who is the director of the biggest marathon distance race series in the country. I thought you were going to go there. I, geez. I just, I'm not sure how that translates to good intentions or, how that pattern shows their willingness to work with promoters. I don't, I don't get it. I also have, I don't like his choice of words in regards to insurance. If you read down through that article, he mentions, he talks to, he talks about, I think he talks about, he's talking about racers and racing unsanctioned events. And he kind of bashes promoters who have USAC unsanctioned events And I'm not sure if this is purposeful or not, but the quote was, people are participating in events with woefully inadequate insurance. The volunteers, the officials, the race directors, the participants have very little coverage in the event of bad things happening, and and they're left exposed. That's one way we think we should be involved. We want to make sure our community is covered. Just the way he says that, he insinuates that all unsanctioned events are dangerous. Is he referencing USAC specific events that maybe aren't followed to the T, or is he referencing no, no, no. all he's, these he's, other events? He's event, He's referencing other events that if yeah. you, re- I mean, he's insinuating that if you want to be a proper insured event, you have to go through USAC. He doesn't say some events. He says people are participating in events with woefully inadequate insurance. 
instead of saying what he could have said was people are participating in some events with woefully inadequate insurance. By, I just by, want to ride my bike and race, man. Right. I know that. But I mean, it's <laughs> just, know? it's just what it just feels like. This is so desperate that USAC is grasping at straws and trying to woo their promoters through saying that independent promoters putting on unsanctioned races, unsacked and USAC races are dangerous. And that putting doubt in the people, not only of the people that race, but by including that the volunteers and the officials are at risk. Come on. I mean, you're, you're, I mean, it's just, it's just, you're building something up. I mean, are they at risk maybe at some of these events, but I just don't see, I can, I, I would almost guarantee that the NUE doesn't have grassroots events are doing them because they, they just want to get out, ride, they want to race, they want to, and they're not, they're right. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just, I don't know. I sometimes find, I just, I hate the like, I mean, this is almost like blowing it well out of proportion and things like that. Are there promoters out there that are probably sketchy and doing a, a mountain bike race without any insurance? Yeah, probably. But it's not It's not like this is happening every day, especially on the the promoters that they would really like to get up with, which yeah. are ones that are putting in 300, 400-person fields. And those guys are putting on quality events, and I can guarantee they're getting all their bases covered. Yeah. I, I sometimes come across as anti-USAC, and I've had my rants. I've done my rants on here several times. I mean, everything from fat bikes and everything else. But I'm not anti-USAC. I've just been very anti-USAC decisions. I think over the past couple of years, they've or several years, they've really made some bad decisions. Going back to their poor attempt at a marathon series when they tried to put together the marathon cup or whatever they were called USA, USA marathon cup. Um, and then they started making unwarranted threats against pros racing in unsanctioned events. You know, when they were telling if you're racing an unsanctioned event, we'll pull your UCI license. And then they start, then they started creating events to me that just seemed like a money play, like fat bike nationals after Previously, they discounted fat biking in general. So they get involved in fat bike and holding fat bike nationals when they, in general, they don't want to have anything to do with fat bike national or fat bike racing at all. I'd had high hopes for the hiring of the, the Bouchard Hall guy who seemed to be far better in touch with grassroots and lower category racing than any of the people that were on the board or his predecessor at the time. And I'm keeping an open mind here, but it's definitely cynical at this point because man, he's just, it's just the decision, bad decisions just keep continuing. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, right on the flip side, there's a lot of good having somebody keeping events going and right. There's yeah. a lot of great events out there too. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, moving on to something a little more positive. <laughs> um, 2016, the NUE schedule. So on Monday, I am going to be interviewing Ryan O'Dell, the director of the NUE, and going over that schedule. And you're actually going to get a chance to find out the NUE schedule here first. It's actually going to be released here on Mountain Bike Radio a couple days before it's actually released out to the general public. So if you want to know what it is, look in the very near future, probably sometime Monday, for a very short interview with Ryan. We're going to go over the races, races point by point. Talk about what's new, what's kind of unchanged, um, see if there's a a new twist in the mix, see how the 
scheduling is going to go, find out how the points are going to go, all that stuff. And it'll be mostly just talking about the series for 2016. There is a previous interview where I did with Ryan where we actually talked about how the whole NUE series evolved way back, probably about a year ago now. But this will be mostly in discussing the 2016 schedule and how that's all going to go. Stay tuned for that. I can tell you that in general, the NUE schedule is mostly unchanged, um, but there are going to be a few little things and then one big thing that I'm not going to mention yet. There is one big addition to the NUE schedule. So cool. uh, let's see. Let's remind people um, that we are now on Twitter. The Twitter is at Last Aid Station. So Last Aid Station is the Twitter handle. We're trying to build up our following there, so to speak, so that you guys know when we have new stuff and old stuff and what's going on in the world of endurance racing between the events and find out maybe what we're going to be covering and when a new episode is released. The Mountain Bike Radio Endurance and Fat Bike Calendar, We, if you look, go back and look at those calendars in their current form right now, um, they only go through the end of this year. Ben Welnack, who owns Mountain Bike Radio, is the the cat herder to all of us here on the podcast. He is doing a ton of work in creating a new website for Mountain Bike Radio. And what he's doing is he's holding off in adding things to this calendar until the new calendar is released, and then it'll be on that new website and all that stuff. And so it's going to be really, 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 really kind of cool. But the team over at the Mountain Bike Radio World Headquarters is going to be double-checking those events and dates, and there's a new website coming in. The sneak peeks that we've seen, it looks really nice. It's super simple but super clean and really, really well done, and we're really looking forward to releasing that. I like it. I think he posted some screenshots, too, on Facebook for anybody to see it, too, so. Yeah, it's it's going to be a it's going to be a great resource um, whether you listen to the podcast or don't. But it's going to be a great resource yeah. to to come here. I mean, it's the only it's the most comprehensive endurance and fat bike racing calendars that I have ever seen. And it's not because I'm on Mountain Bike Radio. It's because this is. I mean, seriously, they they are. You can find races at least two or three every weekend through the season, and um, it's always a great resource and something that we like to get out to people because there's plenty of people out there who really enjoy being able to go to one place to find all their racing without having to Google search for a race and a race date to try to find some races. So I I think, uh, yeah, he did actually too. So for the members, he had posted a link in the member forum. They can actually go see the site and mess around with it too. So, yeah. Yeah. And that, that brings up, uh, Steve actually brings up a great point. So there is a, you can join mountain bike radio as a member and the members get extra perks some discounts to products and vendors who we think fit mountain bike radio. Um, you get discounts to them and some pro deal type stuff. Um, but additionally, you really, by becoming a member, you really support mountain bike radio with all the little financial things that we need, you know, and I'm not talking about paying the podcasters. I'm talking about simple things like keeping the server up and improving the website and, improving uh, the equipment that the individual podcasters use to promote nice, clean, decent shows so that they're very easy to listen to. And if you're interested in that, go to mountainbikeradio.com and check out membership, and you can actually see some of the perks there. It's very easy to join up. 
it's very reasonable as far as costs go. I'm not gonna. I can't remember exactly the prices, but it's very There's very various options. Yeah, and, and there are various options. And uh, but anyhow, if you get a chance and you really like hearing what we produce here on Mountain Bike Radio, go over there, give us a thought, and think about maybe joining Mountain Bike Radio as an official member. Steve, what you got going on up your way? Yeah, there was a few things. Uh, Schwama and Forty actually announced that they're dropping the lottery entry for those not. It was. 2,100 people in the long race, so 3,500 racers total between the what they call the short and fat and then the uh, the 40-miler. And it, it used to be registered you know, before March, and then it was a lottery entry. And now it's first come, first serve registration oh. open up on January 1st. So, so kind of like. Kind of like what the six hours of Warrior Creek, like be on, be on the computer at yeah. 9 a.m. on whatever day and just go for it. Yep. yep. So yeah. kind of interesting. And then uh, yeah, the Lutzen registration opened up as well. So I uh, okay. jumped in that one already. And <laughs> it's actually a uh, qualifier event for Leadville. Oh, cool. The Lutzen is? Yeah. Oh, good yeah. deal. So it's a, it's a lifetime fitness event. Okay. Very cool. Uh, then, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I, it's kind of cool. Um, I've heard some rumors that um, Lifetime Fitness might be uh, being bought out by somebody, um, but I haven't seen anything confirmed in the business things. And I'm not sure if that's Lifetime Fitness events, whether that's going to go off on its own or if that's something that, um, you know, they're talking about the whole corporate structure, okay. yeah, Lifetime Fitness. But I'd heard something kind of, you know, pass through some of the, the press announcements and things like that. So. Yeah. I, you know, I was going to, I had one other thing I was going to jump in. I was, when I was listening to our last show, I, I think I just talked right over your question about the, yeah. uh, the Berkey with the ski and the, uh, the fat bike race. Those are, those are separate weekends. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm surprised yeah. somebody didn't hit us up on that in comments, but, uh, yeah, I think the, the Berkey ski events a couple weeks before and just, I mean, to give an idea, I mean, there's like, I think 10,000 people on the ski event. Right. Yeah. That's what, that's massive, what I was curious about. Massive. I was like, I find it hard to believe they're racing like, yeah, it's ridiculous. Nothing against yeah. nothing against skiers, but I can guarantee there's going to be a few skiers pissed off if there's a fat biker <laughs> riding next to them. I was listening. To, I was you know listening back to the last episode. Yeah. I was I was like, well, I pretty much just ignored him on that. Uh, <laughs> so. Yeah, no big deal. I, I'm I'm just curious how that all works. I mean, it, you know, there's not a ton of fat biking where I'm at at all. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they so, did have some so beach racing, but that sounds like fun. Yeah. So. So to clarify on that, that thousand rider cap, that is a rider cap in the fat bike between the two fat bike races. So, uh, so they don't have a cap for the individual races. That's just total for the two races. From what I could gather, it's a, it's a thousand between the two races. So I'm assuming it has something to do with the event plans and how many people are covered and all that kind of stuff. Maybe. Right. So who knows? Cool. Well, let's, uh, let's dive into the race coverage. Not a ton of races this weekend. Like we talked about earlier, just the, the Iceman and LaRuda yeah. really is all we have, but certainly those two are some of the biggest races in the year. Uh, yeah. A lot of people targeting both those races. Um, so I'll dive into LaRuda uh, to begin with. So okay. unless you live under a rock, you know exactly what this race is. It's a race over its history that's kind of changed the number of stages and the length of the stages and the direction it goes whether it was a UCI event or not. But the one thing that has remained for LaRuda is it is likely more of an adventure than it is a race. Um, the further you get back from the podium, the higher the percentage of that race being more of an adventure 
than actually head-to-head kind of mountain bike racing. Um, I got a chance to speak with Gordon Wadsworth and Keck Baker after the race and kind of got their perspective on how the races unfolded and what the courses were like. And they both agreed that for them, it was likely far more adventure than it was a race. Um, perhaps due to how late in the season it sits for those guys, but also due to the constantly changing conditions and the course over the three-day race. Um, as it is tradition and the idea of the event, the racing of the route is over the Spanish Conquistadores route that went from the Caribbean Ocean to the Pacific over the Central American Isthmus. <laughs> Isthmus! I said Isthmus in a podcast. Um, my, 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 Good job, Mark. Good job. My, my eighth grade geography teacher thought I had poor retention skills. So there. Yeah. Um, yeah. In some previous uh, years, the race had switched directions. But now I think they've kind of come up with a good formula. And they seem to want to be always doing it now west to east. And there are many different reasons for that. But it runs from the town of Herodora, Costa Rica, on the Pacific coast, to the town of Lamont, Costa Rica, on the east coast. Um, three stages, with stages one and two being hugely climby. Um, and moderately long distances and duration, given the terrain. And then stage three being much shorter, a little bit rolling at the beginning with plenty of flats at the end, a few sharp, steep climbs, and then those iconic railroad bridges that you always see in the pictures of La Ruta. In the past several years, the attendance of this race has been mostly European stage race specialists, particularly Spanish teams. This year, it was much more of a regional affair with a huge number of top Costa Rican athletes, a smattering of Colombian top-tier World Tour or World Cup racers, and a few USA riders, including our NUE champions in the form of Brenda Simrel, Roger Massey, Gordon Wadsworth, and Keck Baker. So much more of a Costa Rican thing, but that did not say anything about the speeds and how ferocious the racing was going to be conditions on the course this year, according to racers who were there were much drier than in previous years, which if you've seen the videos on some of the climbs and trails this year makes it hard to believe. I, I was just going to ask you, cause I, I, uh, I don't see how it could I be a video any, of like mud just sucking people in. On seeing the videos, I don't see how it could be any wetter. I mean, had they said that was the wettest in 20 years, I'd have believed them. Them telling me that it was one of the driest years, wow. Um, That just goes to show what this race is normally like. Um, This year, the race was truly likely to be determined in stage two um, with an incredible amount of climbing that had Keck Baker related that the current stage format and the way the course is laid out make it almost a pure climber's race. Stage one a total of 66 miles and 11,000 feet of climbing with three large climbs on the course. But the personality of the course was unrelenting steeps, both up and down and not a bit in the way of flats. Do you see the the grade on the first climb? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, And we'll actually talk about um, Baker actually gave me a couple, you know, good perspectives on the course. Um, He would relate that the climbs absolutely shocked him with the steepness, continuing that it was, even on pavement, it was easy if you weren't balanced on your bike to spin your back wheel and, and lose complete traction on pavement. Wow. Um, he said the stage was where 
the locals really had a big advantage because the climbs changed pitch and length so frequently that you had nowhere, no way to prepare for what was around the next corner. And so it made your pacing very difficult because you didn't know when the climb was going to end or you're going to come around a corner and there's going to be a 25% grade in front of you. Um, additionally, the descents often only had one correct line and the choice was hit or miss unless you were a local and knew where the line was. He said often, um, you know, it would be a double track Jeep downhill, but the right side would be eroded and there'd be like almost like a crevasse in the middle of it or a big, deep eroded section. You'd have to get off and, you know, jump across. Wow. You know, had you chose the left line, you could have ridden right past it. He said in some of the, some of the descents um, on stages one and two, and I can't remember which stage it was, but he actually gave a particular incident where it wasn't that long of a descent, you know, maybe a three or four mile descent where they were coming down a jungle road or whatever. And they were right behind a group that was right in front of them. And by the time they got to the bottom, the gap had grown to 18 minutes. And he goes, and I didn't feel like I was necessarily going slow. He said, it was just, it was just, you just get into, you know, jumping over a hole or get jumping over something because you'd chosen the wrong line. And next thing you know, you're just down by a lot of time, even though you'd rushed through the sections that you could. Yeah. So, keeps adding up. I, yep. Yep. So stage one, um, early morning start at 6 a.m. Had racers heading out of town and headed for the very first shocking climb of the day with a steep monster that rises from sea level to over 2,000 feet. Um, percentages on the climb were at points over 20%, and I think the average was over 15 or 16%. Um, the pack was quickly whittled down on the lower slopes down to a group of seven or eight that became looser and looser as the group stretched to over 30 seconds by the top of the first climb. Showing form and pushing the pace in the lead group was previous winner Paulo Montoya, as well as Colombian riders Luis Anderson Maya Sanchez and Dyer Rincon. Through the aid station at Lagunas at the halfway point of the stage, the front of the field had been knocked down to just Maya Sanchez, Rincon, and Paulo Montoya. They would roll with Paulo Montoya putting in a few attacks on the big climb up through the Escobar checkpoint. And shortly after, the threesome was down to two with Dyer Rincon, the young 24 hour Colombian or 24 year old Colombian phenom who has had improving results through the past three years at La Ruta. Uh, over the highest point of the course, he would slowly uh, snap the elastic and be dropped off the back. They would drop from 3,000 feet down the thick muddy roads and Luis Meyas and Montoya would risk it a bit with uh, Coupinay Economies Maya taking advantage in the final kilometers to win in a time of four hours, 48 minutes and specialized Montoya would finish less than a minute later. Rincon would finish just 10 minutes back, but securely in third with a decent gap back to five chasers that were scattered among the next 10 or 20 minutes that included Keck Baker and Tinker Juarez. So that was after stage number one. Stage number two was definitely the queen stage. And in comparison to stage number one, the profile looked much less intimidating until you looked at the scale. The course was shorter in length than stage one at just 55 miles. However, the total climbing of the day would exceed 14,000 feet. That's ridiculous. I mean, I'm looking at the profile right now and I, oh, they climb continuously for like 40 miles. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the climbing was nearly unrelenting from the start through the first 28 miles with only one short downhill in the middle. 
that drops down 400 feet before continuing on up the climb. How long was that climb? That climb had three aid stations on the same climb. That's how long that climb. Yeah, and the last, the, the third one was not yeah. at the top. Right, correct. Yeah, it, that you just look at that, yeah. and then you look at the scale, and you're, you just look at it, and you. Sh- I just shook my head. I, I couldn't even imagine. Yeah, I, I'm looking uh, at the profile right now. It's yeah. yeah. So additionally, the always fun downhill after such a climb did not exist as the course continued along the ridge at the top, and finished up at elevation. Um, there are a few rollers in the end. Um, on the day, Baker would be with the leaders through much of the beginning parts got caught behind slower riders in the one-lane sections that forced a gap that he couldn't recover from. Additionally, Keck Baker would have a flat and find his cassette body detached from the hub when he tried to reinsert his wheel, scattering paws all over the jungle floor as he did trailside repairs. He estimated he lost at least 10 minutes. He put two paws back in, so he had two points of engagement on his uh, on his uh, cassette. Wow. So anyhow, he would uh, connect the hub Attempt to reattach and attempted to finish the stage. Um, the race started with the lead group decreasing over that huge climb simply due to attrition. There weren't really anybody putting in any necessary attacks, but Keck said that, that you just didn't, you never knew what was around the corner. You never knew how far you were from the top. You never knew when you were going to get a respite with a, like a less degree part of the climb. And so you always had to be pacing yourself. Um, and he said some of the guys were quite a bit lighter. And so he couldn't really necessarily pace off of them because he never knew, you know, when they were at their limit or not at their limit. Yeah. And um, some areas of the course had the group losing members of the front group only to them have them reattach further on. The climb was unpredictable, according to Baker, and not knowing what was around the next corner had him really, really, really tempering his efforts and he would relate later that he may have ridden a little bit too conservative at some points and a little over his head at others. The group would whittle down to some elite front runners in a large lead group, cresting the top in a loose pack of six riders that would slowly disintegrate over the remaining 20 miles. With just 10 miles to go on the f- final smaller 1,000-foot climb, it's funny that I say smaller, 1,000-foot climb. Um, Frederico Ramirez, who had finished over 15 minutes down to the leader on day one and was sitting in fourth on GC, dispatched his companion, Dyer Rincon and Luis Meja, with a big increase in tempo that snapped the elastic. He would win on the day in four hours, 47 minutes, and move into third on GC. Behind him, Rincon and Meja would sprint it out for second, finishing in the same time, and five minutes down with Rincon taking second and Meha third, with Meha remaining in the lead over Rincon and Mendez. For the remaining American riders, Juarez and Baker would ride much of the final portions of the course together after Juarez came across Baker doing his trailside hub repair um, to finish in seventh and eighth on the day. Day number three. So interestingly, there was a bonus whitewater rafting trip um, included in the uh, race this year. Um, as this not a UCI race, they kind of threw in a little bonus thing. If you were able to complete, it was about a four-hour whitewater rafting trip over Cat 3 and Cat 4 rapids. Um, it was part of the package. If you're able to complete it, um, they give you a five-minute bonus time. All of our NUE competitors did that race or did that rafting trip, but um, in talking to Baker, he said there were really no 
uh, other elite riders really necessarily doing it. Um, both Wadsworth and Baker would later relate some dehydration issues on the last day um, and wondered how much that rafting trip maybe took it out of them. Um, there was also the issue of the rafting trip ended at the start line of the last day, and they literally arrived minutes before the start. Like there were riders already lined up when they got out of the boats. Um, so they're running around, mixing bottles, changing into gear, getting their bikes ready. So Long probably, in, probably in hindsight, probably wasn't the best issue, best thing to be taking on. It's probably um, good time though. So uh, this stage, it was a, it's a mostly downhill back to the sea stage, um, but there are a few stout, steep climbs at the beginning, lots of creek crossings, and of course those iconic railroad bridges on the final push to the Caribbean to finish on the Costa Rican beaches. Uh, Baker had initially targeted this stage specifically, and he put in an early attack that gained a gap on the opening climbs, but was quickly pulled back by a rider who then exploded spectacularly out the back of the group. Um, a group of seven to eight riders completed those early climbs together and hit the bottom of the descent, lined out in a pace line onto the railroad crossings where the first gap would occur as a small group of five was able to use a rider struggling with the railroad crossing to their advantage and escape that was never to be brought back. That group included Rincon, Mejas, Ramirez, Montoya, and Diego Solano, the overall GC top five behind the pack that lead group was a huge group exceeding 15 riders, all within a minute of each other. They raced across the railroad trestles together. Back up front, the closing miles, Meja and Mendez would get a final gap on the last bit of dirt on the course and work together to stretch it out to nearly two minutes by the finish, with Louis Mejas taking the stage win in one hour, 53 minutes, in a sprint finish and confirming the LaGruda GC win. Federico Ramirez would finish in second on his wheel and take third on GC. Dyer Rincon would sprint it out just two minutes later for the final podium position on the day, beating Paulo Montoya and securing second on the GC podium at La Ruta. Fourth place would go to Montoya, um, who has won this race more than once, as has Ramirez, who had actually finished third and is actually the winningest rider of La Ruta stages. In the single speed division, um, of course, last year, Gordon Wadsworth won this race because he was actually the only single speeder to actually finish all stages. This year, he actually had a little bit of competition in the form of Jeffrey Herrera. Despite Herrera having the race pedigree and results in the past to potentially have forced Wadsworth pace, I'm not saying that he would have necessarily beaten him, but certainly would have made a little bit of a race out of it. He finished well down on day one. And then it was likely found out that he was actually pacing his spouse who was racing her LaRuda for the first time. But Gordon Wadsworth wins LaRuda for the second year in a row in the single speed division. And I think he finished uh, 16th overall, which is pretty impressive on a single speed considering the climbs. Um, for you gear weenies, Wadsworth rode a 34-22 on day one and two. And then a 34-18, but likely could have uh, wished he'd had a bigger gear on that last day that was mostly downhill. In the 50-plus Masters division, NUE champ Roger Massey would finish second behind the legend Tinker Juarez. This was a very hard race for us to cover this year. Um, it felt like there was like almost <laughs> a media blackout uh, for some reason. There just wasn't a whole lot of information. I'm not sure if it's because they dropped 
being a UCI sanctioned event or whatever. Um, in confirming winners, it was really difficult, except in the elite men's race. And at this point, in looking at the results, I'm still not sure who won the women's race. <laughs> Tons of information out there, but nothing. Some 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 of that information contradicts itself. So I'm sorry, I don't have the women's race results there. What about? I had heard something about you, you followed this way closer than I did, but I had heard something about an American getting lost out there. So yeah, they actually had on the first day they had um, there were a couple streams that actually had become almost river and there the the torrent was quite strong. Um, at one point he I guess he had crossed a section of the river with no one else and so no one else saw it happen. Did they have to cross the river as part of the trail or? Yeah, I think it was okay. part of the trail. Now, whether he was off course and maybe crossing the river at a different point, I'm not sure. Because there were some stories of people getting off course. And Keck Baker even related that he'd gotten off course once or twice. Yeah. Uh, but the it was an American uh, from Colorado. He actually got washed down the river and, of course, lost his shoes, lost his... Uh, lost his bicycle, lost everything in the river, um, and came up much further down than where he'd entered. Um, and because he didn't have shoes, he didn't want to go walking through the jungle. And so he'd actually spent a night out in the jungle uh, before walking into a village later that night or the next day. Um, so he was actually wow. lost for 12 hours. They actually started uh, a search for him after some of his companions that he'd been traveling with um, said that he hadn't finished the stage, was, you know, unaccounted for and so uh interesting he he was found all safe and sound uh the next morning no, no major issues but um yeah interesting story to say the least lost in the costa rican jungles without a pair of shoes it's puts a whole new yeah. spin on adventure race. yeah yeah so an interesting take on 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 the exploration and adventure part of the part like of a that fire starter in your camelback yeah yeah and, and i mean it, I can't imagine that was a very comfortable night. No. Wet, cycling gear, no shoes. Yeah. Okay, Steve, so you had um, some information about the Iceman Cometh race. Always a big event. I'm uh, kind of interested to see how this pans out because it's always kind of a a mix of who shows up. Yeah, it was a huge race. Well, I mean, it's just to put it into perspective, and I, I think most people around the sport have – heard of Iceman, whether they're familiar exactly with what it is or not, but there's there's 5,000 people that come out for it. Right. And I think this was the 26th year of it. So it's, it's a huge race. Conditions are different every year. And it's point-to-point, correct? Yeah, it's a point-to-point race. It's in northern Michigan. It's an all-day, it's a whole weekend. It's like clo- close out of the season for everybody, right? And it's, it's uh, a lot of people look forward to it. Uh, certainly after following it myself and everything, I'm like, wow, I... Sounds like something I might want to zip to Michigan and go visit home and at the right. end of the year, you know? Yeah, and it's always interesting to see what it's like because it's called Iceman Cometh because occasionally it's in ridiculous snowy, icy yeah. condition. But some years it's warm and guys have got shorts on. So, I mean, it's yep. it, it anything and everything is possible. Yeah, so last year it was – on that freeze thaw, I think there might have actually been some snow in the morning, and it was a muddy mess by the end of the day. I mean, this year was fast. Uh, it was in the 40s for most of the race, and that might seem cold to you, Mark, but for us, that means, yeah. <laughs> Shorts. Yeah, no no leg warmers when it's 40s. Right. So, 
but it was yeah it was it was a huge race and and kind of just to give some logistics of the whole thing because you might think how do five thousand people race at the same time they don't so yeah. they actually have like fifty some waves and they start in the morning around nine a.m. and those waves went like all day you know and and then it's ranked based on previous race time or race resume or something like that and then now, do they do they ride it in like do they make the pro men like the the signature part of the race, like so they go like last and behind well behind everybody, or are they first wave? Yeah. So what they do is they time it so the the pros don't start till like two thirty in the afternoon. Okay. And when they start, many of the people are cleared off the course and maybe the tail end is finishing as the pros are starting. Right. And there might have only been a handful or two of people still out on the course that maybe got caught by the pros and what they do is they have those people pull off to the side let right. the pros run through and then they go back on their way so right. and, the, and the the men and women actually start separately as well from uh, in the pro race oh. so the men take off and then i think it's like 10 minutes later than the women take off yeah so i actually the the day before or two days before everyone was predicting a super fast race and it was yeah but the one thing that was actually predicted was Jeremiah Bishop was predicting sub 130 now having reported on this race last year that's nowhere near the time they did last year and i was thinking there is no way they're going to run i think i think last year it was like 140 something longer than uh, that i think I yeah think. 150 something 150 but, something last yeah, year yeah close yeah. to 2 hours like Right. So I was, I was really, I'm like thinking there's no way they're going to run 130 and drop, you know, 20 minutes off of the time that they did last year. Yeah. Dang close though. Dang close. Holy <laughs> goodness, man. That was ridiculous. Yeah. That's why when you said they're running like 16, 17 miles an hour, I'm like, oh, faster. Yeah. So, so I don't have as many details on the women's race as I do the men's, but right. uh, I'll jump in. I'll do the women's first because we, we usually yeah the way that's around, great so. yeah absolutely so as i said the women's race started separately about 10 minutes after after the men and the cool thing is i was able to watch the entire race live streaming from minnesota okay so it was it was really cool so even though i wasn't there i probably had a better seat for the race sitting in my house in minnesota than someone at the race mm-hmm. uh, because they actually had cameras at all the crossroads too Okay. So and they would flip between the cameras, so it was pretty cool. But it was uh, the women's race was a really tight race up front. There was no solo gaps that formed that I could see, like there was in the men's race that I'll talk about. Uh, eventually, at about the thirty-minute mark or so, the Dockery Road crossing, there was a there was a small gap of about eight women that started to to separate from the main pack. And by about an hour and a half into the race, there was down to five, and you know a few getting dropped off the back. Basically, it it came down to the end of the race with some just sprints and head-to-head racing with Stan's no-tubes niner, Chloe Woodruff, and Team Luna, Georgia Gould, battling it out at the end of the race uh, where they ended up putting a 15-second gap on the chase group with Stan's no-tube, Chloe Woodruff, stepping out in front on the last hill to finish first in an hour, 53, in 14 seconds. And Team Luna, Georgia Gould, coming in second, a few seconds behind Chloe, and... Team Luna Katerina Nash in third at an hour 53 in 32 seconds. Georgia Gould, I believe, was the winner last year. Okay. So um, I always thought, I always find it really interesting the way they have that finish set up. It kind of has like this 
circuit route through like the so if you're like if you're a spectator you can actually stand in one spot and watch almost the last kilometer of the race because they're kind of twisting and turning like just yeah, all through like this one yeah almost through like a very like tight packed part of the course um, and you can actually see the all the last corners and stuff like that. So you see someone come in there, you can actually see someone trying to chase them down or see how the sprint evolves and things like that, which is not normal for, you know, a normal cross country race. Usually they come in and they finish and this kind of loops all over the place, which is really, really kind of a cool thing. And something I think, you know, Iceman has kind of made like part of their signature of that kind of race. It's really cool because just watching it and, and getting some feedback on the race, like I said, it, it makes you no- understand why everybody gets out to it because it sounds like it's just a blast the whole weekend. And, I mean, keep in mind, so all those other non-pro racers have finished, and they're all there watching the pro race come in. So the uh, I had heard that basically on that last hill, it's like five deep on each side of the, the barricades. Yeah. Um, rooting it on, so it's pretty exciting. Pretty yeah. exciting. Yeah, pretty exciting, plus all the beer, which is always the yeah. best. There you go. Yeah. Can't Racing right through that. the beer garden. So recovery drink. Yeah. So on to the men's race. And as I was mentioning, I, I was watching it live stream on the web. I saw the pack come through the first crossroad with everybody still together, moving pretty fast. After talking to a couple guys in the pack, it sounds like there was a few different guys trading poles, but there was a really, really strong headwind. And Eventually, Tim Cliff Bar's Troy Wells started pushing the pace at one point to try and pull some guys out of the pack and ended up finding himself with a gap. He later said he wasn't trying to put in a break that early, but the gap kept forming with his push, so he eventually went with it. It was about an hour into the race that I saw Troy Wells come through the Williamsburg crossroad, and he had like a 30-second gap at that point. At some point there, too, KS Energy Team Wisconsin's Brian Motter did step out to was going to try to bridge that gap. Early mm-hmm. on, had another rider in tow, eventually dropped back to the main chase pack after getting about halfway across and realizing that he was going to have to make that pull on his own. Now, did, were, were there team tactics going on here? Because I know um, uh, Zontog was in there, um, and, he, of course, he's teammates with Wells. Um, were, were those guys working? Like, was he purposely trying to slow the field down or – Heck, even Wells's brother. I mean, how was that going on? Yeah, so I did hear that that uh, Todd Wells was in the front of that chase pack quite a bit. Yeah, and so I don't know the there's there's areas on the course when you get into some of the single track that it's hard to pass. So yeah, yeah there probably was some of that going on. It, it, if you listen to some of the interviews and stuff, that there was some hinting to that. Yeah, I mean, I, you find it hard to believe if Todd Wells is at the front with his brother off the front that he's trying to chase his brother down. I just find that hard to believe. Yeah. 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 You know, you know, yep. yeah, you, absolutely. you know what's going on. Yeah. I, it, it sounded like Todd was probably out there a few times trying to control the pace. Okay. So the pack at the bottom of Anita's Hill, which is about seven to eight K left in the race. And they could see Troy Wells at the top. Starting to think now that there's some hope they might catch him. Brian Mouder jumped to attack. was going to bridge that gap up the climb. Specialized Todd Wells jumped out, attacked with him. And the rest of the group's following. Modder couldn't get away, ended up getting shuffled back into the group. At the same time, Topeka Ergon's Jeremiah Bishop puts in a solo attack, times it well. Nobody follows. About 6K to go, Jeremiah Bishop catches Troy Wells. Now, Troy's been running solo for a good chunk of the race. I mean, most of it. Plus, was the one pushing out, putting the heat on at the beginning. Right. And he jumped in behind Jeremiah. 
Bishop to, you know, as they race toward the finish with about 2K to go, and it turns into a pretty good race at the end here. So with about 2K to go, Troy Wells outsprints Jeremiah Bishop to enter the final single track. They get about halfway through the single track on a, on a hill. Bishop comes back around Troy Wells. They come out of this last hill, and there's a little bit of a section before they hit the tight barricades again. Troy Wells comes back around Bishop before the last 100 yards of barricaded trail to the finish. Team Cliff Bar's Troy Wells crosses the finish in an hour, 36 minutes, with Topeak Ergon's Jeremiah Bishop crossing the line, hot on his tail about a second later. Yeah, I saw the finish. It, man, that, the video of the finish was, they were it was tight. Out. But even even the top, I don't know, whatever that group was, top seven, top eight, even though you have these guys racing for the the top two right up front, you know, way you know, supposedly in front of all these guys, they still were only, what, 15 seconds in front of, the top eight were all within the first 20 seconds or so. Yeah, they were, they weren't that far back. So, yeah. you know, basically what happens, you get in, if you got a big group like that, I think it's hard to pass in some of those barricade and, and that, you know, tight area at the end yeah. of the course. So what I was told, those guys pretty much knew that whatever order they went into that final trail is probably how they were going to come out of it. Okay. And Scott threes, Jeff Kabush won that sprint into that final single track. Sure enough, was the first one to come out of it. He crossed the line an hour, 36 minutes, and 22 seconds, which is only eight seconds back from Bishop. Right. It, cool uh, racing. Always good racing up there. I, man, I, I've always wanted to go up there, but, man, it's a long drive for, you know, hour and 45 minutes. Of yeah, it, I mean, even for me, I mean, I'm in yeah. Minnesota, but yeah. I think to get out that way, it'd still be a, you know, 10, 11-hour drive for myself, so. Yeah. Well, great. That was, uh, that was kind of cool. And, uh, I'd imagine they're, they're already planning for next year. Do you know if they have any, uh, any new stuff coming out for next year? Or is it, I mean, they really don't need to change anything. I mean, it's such a, a great event. No, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. I was looking at like back to their first race and this was like the 26th year of it. Right. And so you go back, I mean, that was, old school and i think it started with a few guys going hey do you think we could ride our bikes from here to there you know and and right it turned into a race and i think there's a lot of cool stories about a lot of races that started out that way but yeah it's it's got a huge huge gathering and pull yeah and i mean there was a lot there was a lot of top racers out there and, it, and it seems to get a huge i mean the the community seems to be behind it a hundred percent yeah I mean, you talk about some other races. Well, the community's behind us, but that race—I mean, it's—I mean, it's huge. I mean, they. I mean, it's it's a it's a big party gathering yep. festival. I it's mean, they make it. It's, it's not just the weekend. race; it's everything else that goes along with it. And yeah. It's. Uh, and the winner gets this huge ice cup. Word is that you know the bars fill it for free. <laughs> so. Until it melts. <laughs> Great. Well, that was great coverage, man. Thank you very much for doing that. Well, I think that just about does this show. Um, you got anything going on up in your neck of the woods? Like, uh, what do you got going new going on for Steve? Yeah, you know, we actually touched on this, like the power meter stuff. Right. I, I keep going back and forth on it. I'm like, oh, I should get one, you know, put on my road bike for training. And then I'm like, I know it'll lead to wanting to put one on my mountain bike, which yeah. probably isn't as useful. But since I am going to do a lot of endurance stuff, it could be. But then. Right. And I'm like, wow, for the price of the power meters, I could get a gravel bike. So, yeah. Well, so that, bike. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you always figure out a better way to spend the money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, 
my brakes are junk. I need new brakes. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, there are ways of, of getting one power meter now, um, for, you know, all the bikes, um, you know, you get the, especially the stages, you can get, you know, something that fits that, you know, Shimano connect, you know, the way the, the, the bottom bracket fits or yeah. not the bottom, the crank fits and just switch that crank arm out. And you know, now you're having to, depending on what your day is, you're going to have to switch yeah. that crank arm out. And then there's also the guys that'll tell you that, you know, if you're going to go out and just do intervals based on power, they go out and do them on your mountain bikes since that's what you're going to be racing on. Well, yep. No, you know, uh, that's, that's, that's there's, that, there's nothing wrong with that. So, yeah, I mean, I think, it, I think power meters are really good, but I think um, if you're not using them correctly, you're kind of overkill. So if you're not using them in training, you're only looking at it at like post, post workout or post ride. And it's probably not a, the best expense for you. You could probably get a, set of carbon wheels for the same price. Exactly. So. That's what I'm it's like, I can, get a, I can get an entire gravel bike for, yeah. you know. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not any authority on training or just after having had power meters and things like that. It, you know, it, I, I would use it for training because yeah. if you're doing short intervals, it can be tough to do it with heart rate. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I, the funny thing is that I actually have a power meter on my road bike, um, which is actually connected to the kicker, which has a power meter built in. And so I've actually thought about getting rid of the power meter on my road bike because yeah. the only time I really do intervals is on the kicker. Yep. Well, then I don't need the, the power meter on there. Um, and I don't ride my road bike that much outside. If it's nice and sunny, I'm going mountain biking. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's lots, lots, of, lots of cool technology coming out there, and I'm sure we'll continue to have these cool discussions about – What's going on? Um, for me here in North Carolina, I'm getting my last rides of the year in in amazing temperatures before I have to pull out the box with all my winter gear. I, I still can't understand that, Mark. <laughs> it's, um, yeah. I, uh, yeah. It's it's funny. Like I'm I'm to the point now where I, I don't think winter winter is definitely not here by any yeah. stretch. Um, but you can feel it coming by the way it's gusty and windy and things like that. Um, on other notes, um, I've decided to make a big commitment to 2016 to racing, like a big one. Um, got a coach now, um, cool. and we're going to work out a plan. I'm even jumping into um, a full nutrition plan and big props to Kelly from Apex Nutrition, who has a podcast right here on Mountain Bike Radio. She's going to be helping out with me. Um, not only drop a few pounds, get down to a, like a real nice waist, race weight over the winter, uh, but also learning more about like eating for performance, which has always been a little bit of a downfall for me because I either underdo it or overdo it. And hopefully, well, not hopefully, I know she'll put me on the right track to figuring out exactly um, what I should be doing there. Because, you know, I've always eaten nutrition for when you want to lose weight as a cyclist, that's important. But I know I need to eat for recovery. But I know sometimes I'm probably underdoing it, or maybe I'm even overdoing it and putting maybe too many calories in, or, or you know, the wrong types of food sources for recovery or whatever. Yeah. And to get a, get a nutritionist behind it who has the schooling and not not just the Google research that I've done on how to do that will be nice. It'll be nice to put it in someone who has that education behind her. That's cool, um, man. You're going all in. Yeah, I'm all in. I'm all in for 2016. I'm saying it here. I like it. Uh, yeah. So I'm looking forward to it. So. I think that's everything. Thank yeah. you, everybody, for joining us again on the last aid station here on Mountain Bike Radio. We hope you guys are enjoying what you're hearing as we move into the winter season. And both Steve and I hope to see you soon on the trails. So take care. Bye.